He knows that he has a formula that works. He'll do a $5 million movie and put $10 million into the advertising. advertising. And now it's $15 million. Opening weekend, they make 30 wow, And then they okay. go on to make you know $100 million. So it's like printing money. Welcome to the podcast, episode 15 of Living Large, where you can catch it every Wednesday morning exclusively on the app CastBox. Just go to the App Store and download it. I post it on there first at 6 a.m. PST, followed by a noon posting to my posting time on my YouTube channel. Today's guest is a very close friend of mine and my roommate, George, Greg Linz, or Greg Lindsay. Lindsay, yeah. Greg Lindsay. Yes. Welcome on to the show. People that know me well will actually just call me the Linz. The Linz. Yeah, the Linz. Mr. The Linz. You're from New York, right? From born and raised Buffalo. in New York. Yeah, upstate New York. And then I lived in the city for a minute. Then I moved to Chicago where I did comedy, believe it or not. Which it yeah, you're not that funny. Here. No, I know. <laughs> uh, Chicago and then to L.A. So I just keep making my way from New York, Chicago, L.A. Pretty soon I'll be in Honolulu, I think. Oh, wow. You just keep, just going, keep going west. <laughs> and then Japan, you never know where you're going to end up. Yes. So, so how I know Greg is... Him and George used to live in the same apartment complex yeah. when George first moved in his first apartment. Yep. His, uh, and he had the best apartment, he said, in the thing because it was updated and renovated. Well, in all fairness, his first apartment, he lived in two apartments in my building. And the first one was probably the worst in the building. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But then he upgraded when he moved to the other one. It was recently remodeled. And it was probably the best, or at least the second best because... Mine was probably still the best. Yours was still the best, yeah. yeah but I, I, he's got a, he's got an upgrade. He went to sixteen hundred Vine, which is the luxury apartment. Luxury, yes. And now we're living in a house. Uh, but let's talk about you a little bit. Why'd you move out here from Chicago from after Chicago. New yes. York? Well, I went from yeah New York to Chicago to do comedy, which is natural because after I left, uh, I went to college for uh, football. I had a scholarship. I was running back. Rudy. Division, yes, just I was like Rudy because it was Division One, and I was by far the smallest guy on the team. But ironically, the strongest guy on the team. That's, which, oh yeah, I remember you told me you could squat like five hundred pounds. Five thirty. Yeah, I squat five thirty. I would bench three seventy five, and I curl one eighty five, and I weighed one seventy. Keep this in mind. Greg's the only person I could see eat a box of Oreos and never put on a pound. I don't. I don't. I think I have a tapeworm that's never been you know taken out of my body. But yeah, so I will. Uh, I went from college. Uh, from there, I said, okay, I have this. I've been doing well in football. Things are going great. Next step, obviously, logically, is to go to Chicago to do comedy. Why Chicago for comedy? Because I know a lot of people go there. I went to Chicago because it was the improv capital of the world. Okay. And I went to train with this guy named Del Close, who was the comedy guru who trained like everybody from the way in the past, like the Bill Murray and the and the uh, Chris Farley and Tina Fey. And but how do people. you how do you train someone to be funny? I th- I feel like being funny is you should have it, you know? Yes. Well, if you don't have it, then you're not going to become a good yeah. improviser. But <laughs> it, it's pretty much it. Just it, it gives you a structure to work to work in. Is this know? in stand up or is this in film? Is this a theater? Whatever. This maybe? was this was a theater. These are theaters. This was a theater that we would have like a 200 person audience, and we would um, we would do t- like. 30 minute uh, pieces one would be like a movie and you ask the audience it'd be like six of us on stage can you give us a suggestion for a movie and somebody'd be like you know Starbucks and like okay great we'll do you know Starbucks so for 30 minutes we would create a movie so it's improv it was all improv long form improv and we just create a movie from the audience suggestion which if you're ever in Chicago by the way you got to go to the Improv Olympic to check it out because it is by far the best comedy club and I was just there last week because I was in Chicago and I saw my pictures up on the wall still with all the other you know with with the Tina Faze and the Amy Polars and everybody else up there. Um, so yeah, check it out because it's the most brilliant, uh, the br- brilliant format to watch. It's all improvised. Everything you t- every time you get on stage, you do something you've never done before and do something you never do again. So so let me get this like because in today's 
day and age, I feel like there's a lack of comedians, if you will, with social media. It's like there's no stand-up comedy, really, like the Seinfelds. Like, um, like I can only think of Jerry Seinfeld when I think of like a stand-up comedian. Do you think it's something that you still need to do? Is it something that... Because like you would do stand-up comedy to become famous. Now it's like, all right, social media came around, and that's kind of the gateway to becoming famous. Yeah, I, I think back in the day, the thing was to be... If a stand-up comic got his own TV show, you get on the, you're supposed to get on The Tonight Show. Right. Oh, Dave the, Chappelle. Exactly, yeah. Dave Chappelle also. You get on The Tonight Show. Once you're on The Tonight Show, then people see you, and the network says, we're going to give you a, your own TV show. Okay. You know, So that's how it was back in the 90s, though, like a long time ago. But then people, they started going fewer and fewer, and then now that social media is here... Um, actually, Chicago and LA with the ground lanes and Second City and Improv Olympic and now the UCB, Upright Citizens yeah, yeah. Brigade, now that's the end because people from there go to Center Night Live and all that kind of stuff. But here's my, do you think that social media killed stand-up comedy or no? No, stand-up will always be there because everybody thinks that they're the funniest person in the world. Right. And by being on the stage themselves, they feel they'll be able to show people that. So stand-up will always be around. Um, I think that See, the thing about stand-ups, a lot of time, the knock was that they couldn't actually do anybody else's material. Right. Whereas when you do improv, you have to learn how to, you know, work with other people. You're not on a stage doing a monologue anymore. You now are doing dialogues and stuff with people. So I think it only helps. I think a lot of people from improv will actually start stand-up as well. You know what I'm saying? To give them another way to possibly get noticed and stuff. But you need to be able to nowadays know how to do scene work with people because if you're going to do a TV show you know you need to be able to uh, act and a lot right. of stand-ups cannot act really they used to in the day now they can and I think a large part is because of social media yeah I think I mean when I think of like a improv but not really show I feel like Saturday Night Live is kind of the only show on right now that still embodies comedians well, that's the ultimate. If you get to Center Live, it shows that in most people from there, 90% of the cast are all from improv. They're but, all from But is Saturday Night Live still a hot thing? It, You know what? It's funny. It's been around since 1975, and it's never not been there. It's been right, there right. since then. And um, it will always be important and relevant because of the politics. It always has a political right, right. edge to it. So it's always going to start with some kind of political thing and stuff. So it will always be relevant in that sense. And you'll always have the people that come out of that that, that want to do movies and their own TV shows. The the Kristen Wiig now and you know Will Ferrell. She, oh, and, Kristen Wiig was on Saturday Night Live? On Saturday Night Live for many years. You so know, was Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell for many years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Actually, everybody used Eddie Murphy for many years. You know, Bill Murray, John uh, Belushi, all back in the 70s. The people that like that were the main comedians in the world came from Center Live and they still do. So do you see someone like Pete Davidson who's there now going and becoming a movie star or no? Well, Pete is very specific. You know, he, he plays himself. Um, people, he, he has a likable quality about him that people just immediately, immediately like him. They want to kind of like hug him, mm -hmm. even though he's like, you know, 6'10". Yeah. You know, they still want to like <laughs> hug him and, and all that stuff. Um, interesting, what I've, what I've ascertained from SNL is people who play themselves like, um, you know, uh, uh, Adam uh, Sandler also came from Saturday Night Live. Adam Sandler? Okay. Yes. So all these people who play themselves in Saturday Night Live, like Adam Sandler, you know, all these people, they become the biggest stars when they can do themselves on the big screen. If you can do a bunch of characters and stuff, you don't really become as big as people who just play themselves and are okay. loved for playing themselves. I mean, I look at Andy Sandberg. He's hilarious. I love him. Yeah. But he hasn't really done that many movies. No. He, an interesting thing, some people can become movie stars and some people will only be able to be on TV, 
he seems to be only <laughs> successful on TV, wildly successful. I mean, his show right now, they got picked up from from Fox over to, um, I think, what, NBC now, the uh, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, he's brilliant on it, and it's him playing himself. And that's why he will be successful probably after this show to another show on so TV. So then what's the point of acting when these guys are being successful playing themselves? Because you look at like Adam Sandler, he and even Jim Carrey, in most movies he plays like Ace Ventura, or, yeah. or Adam Sandler plays Happy Gilmore. Yes. It's like, is that themselves, or is that a... a the, the, the brilliance of these people is that they have writers who write for them. They know their voice. So they're pretty much saying, here are words that you are going to speak anyway. We're going to put them on paper. So even though when I say playing yourself, you are playing yourself, but you have writers. Like Adam uh, Sandler will have a script that sends to him, that's sent to him. And if he says, yeah, I'm going to do this, he has his own writers that go and do a rewrite and put the words in, into his, his words, in his voice, basically. So yeah, he knows how to. So it sounds very natural. But then again, every comedian will always at some point want to stretch and show people they can also act and do drama. Every one of them. And some of them, I think. I mean, are what was better. that one that Jim Carrey was in um, with the beach and stuff, where he was like schizophrenic or something? Was it the Eter- spotless eternal, the eternal sunshine of the spotless, of the spotless mind? mind? I thought he did a great job in he that. He did. He did, and he actually can really act um, even in drama because I think we all know he is insane. Well, he's got he's an artist now. He's an artist, and now he's an artist. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, a lot of people can. A lot of comedians, really strong comedians, can do both, but it's hard for people that are really strong dramatic actors to really do comedy. Right. Do it really well. Okay, so you went to Chicago, then you came out here, and you got into acting, right? Yeah, I, I came out here Im- immediately. I got lucky because uh, I, I came from the main stages uh, back in Chicago. So when I came out, I had a little bit of heat behind me, and I wound up booking like three TV shows, like network shows, in the first two months, and then I just started working. You know, acting is the main thing. And then somebody said, "Hey, man, uh, I'm writing the show. Why don't you come and write on the show for me?" I'm like, "Well, I really don't write, but all right, I'll give it a shot." So I started writing for. So from some show, I wound up uh, becoming like a producer and writer on a Chelsea Handler show. Not the Chelsea Handler show, but another show that Chelsea Handler mm-hmm. was on a few years back. And then I, I had a script um, that I wanted to do. And I, I had a buddy of mine, uh, uh, John Favreau, who's a brilliant director. And uh, I'm like, hey, man, I have this thing, you know, and I want to do it. But I'm waiting to get a certain, you know, big name to do it with me. He's like, dude, just make it yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, easy for you to say you did Swingers. You had Vince Vaughn. Yeah. And you guys, you know, you guys blew up. He's like, just do it. So I just did it. I wrote it. I directed it. I produced it. I started in it. And it is nowhere now. No, I'm <laughs> it, it, it's actually on, like, I think, like Amazon and, and, uh, and all that stuff, so Netflix. And you wrote it and directed it? Yeah, I wrote it. How did you get it. funding for, like, a movie? So someone that wants to make their own movie. Exactly. What you do is you, when you want to make your first movie, you go to the family. You go to the relatives, you go to the dentists that you know, <laughs> the, the, the doctors you know, and you ask them all for X amount of money. And you can make movies now, especially now with, with the, the quality of cameras and stuff now, you can make movies for probably like $50,000, like a legit, huge, you know, two right. like hour and a half movie that's like looks like it could be in the theaters. So yeah, that's the way to do it. So I came out here, I asked a bunch of family and relatives and friends of people, and and somehow I was able to get, you know... A bunch of people to give me like ten or twenty thousand each, and I had a whole handful of people do it, and then I just made this movie. And I actually went and looked at every single book you can see about making movies, and I talked to everybody I knew that were directors, and asked them. I watched commentaries, directors' commentaries on DVDs, and then I just did it. And um, it's the scariest thing to do in the world, right? Yeah. But the most fulfilling and rewarding at the end of the day, when you said, "Holy cow, I made a whole, I made a feature film that's going to be out there forever." And uh, I was very happy with it. Did you edit it? I sat with my editor 
every day, because at first I said, look, I have a really, I have a, a certain vision for this. I said, how does this work? He goes, well, either I do a rough cut and give it to you, or you can, you know, you can sit with me and stuff. I said, well, let me sit with you the first day, give you my ideas of how I'd like it, and see what we can do. So I sat with him. I said, I like this, this, let's do that take. Can you cut this here, do this, about? And he's like, at the end of the day, you, you need to sit with me, he said. And yeah. I sat with him for like three months, you know, three months, um, and uh and we made them, and we made, remade this movie with the edit. Yeah, and I wanted to ask a question because you've done the, the acting, you've done the comedy, you've done the writing, you've done producing, directing. How? And I've always wondered. I've always been curious to see, like, because everyone always wants to become an actor, right? Yeah. How does someone become a director and be like, "Hey, studio, I can direct this film"? Like, you always have to. Someone has to give you your first film. Yes. How does that come about? Well, usually like, your first film is your own film. Okay. You know what I'm saying? To direct it, you know? And and then you have to, like, you have to, you know, submerge yourself. Submerge? Yeah. Something like that. Submerge, you, yeah. Yeah. Submerge yourself, if you will, into learning how to direct. Because it's, like, the good thing is that as a writer, you know how you want your vision to look. Right. Which is going to help you direct it. You know what I'm saying? You know what angles you want. You know the visual stuff. So, but then you have to know the basics of of camera work and how they how it's going to look and and how to set up your shots and you know you can get a storyboard artist to, to help you or you could do it yourself whatever it is um i just i just learned by watching other people uh, i learned how to write by i had like i have two really close friends out here are like a-list writers you know uh, shane black and kurt wimmer who are huge you know um you know, Shane wrote and directed Iron Man 3 and Kurt, his big thing was uh, Salt with Angelina Jolie that he wrote. So these guys are brilliant. So I'd read their scripts to see what a good writer, what it looks like to write, you know, and write well. So I would learn writing from them and then I would sit with uh, Shane and talk to him about directing and stuff to get his information about, you know, his insights into that all. So that's usually how you do it by just doing your own thing. And sometimes it's trial and error. The first thing you do may not be great, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but like, here's, here's like, for example, Stranger Things, mm -hmm. hugely successful on Netflix. It kind it came out of nowhere. I, who were the directors, like the guys that wrote it? How did they get convinced the studio to fund this and them be the directors? That's what I'm trying to understand for me personally. Like for you guys listening, you may want to become a YouTuber or whatever, but in, in my goal is to be a director. I direct my skits on Instagram I right. direct my vlogs but those are nowhere near an hour and a half long feature film and those like, like I could say my resume is like these skits but like how does a Mark Donor convince Fox Studios that I can direct the film well um, you you ultimately want to do a reel a reel which is uh, sets of scenes that you've directed and it could be either from a movie you've done or a TV show or a skit but I think Nowadays, and for you, because you've done so many different um, uh, vlogs and skits, and that, put a reel together of like five, ten minutes of all different, like you know, three or four different scenes showing different styles of how you direct. You know what I'm saying? So people will get an idea of what is a Mark Donor directed movie going to look like. So you know, if your movie is going to be a comedy, show all different things in the comedy nature of you directing. If it's going to be drama, show that. Show the tone of what you're going to sell them on. It's like, hey. Here's what I want to direct, and here's a reel, which is you know five minutes of previous things I've directed. That's how you do it. Now, Stranger Things, I don't know who the who the uh, the directors the are. The brothers, I think. Are they? And they and I don't know. Had they directed before? Either the writers are brothers or the directors are brothers. I can't remember. Here's the thing I've learned also about. Uh, like, how does one come up with this? insanely fucked up idea that's what I always want to know because I, I watch these movies and, and even like Mission Impossible it seems to me like you need to be your mind needs to be not normal 
And I'm insinuating these guys are on drugs. Most writers are not normal. <laughs> if not most, all are not normal. They're really weird people. Right. Because you got to think, you can't think linear. You know, you got to think you're, 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 you're all over the place. And Stranger Things is one of those examples of people who are like, I don't know if they're on like psychedelic mushrooms or what, but they come up with the craziest things of let's go here. But everyone loves that. That's what I like. It seems like to make a TV show now, to make a movie, you have to come up with something that's so far fetched. Like if you look at a black mirror, Mm -hmm. just some of those episodes, it's like you're pulling this, you're stretching this as far as you can. (laughs) It's almost like clickbait. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like clickbait on YouTube. It's a movie that's all clickbait. You know, it's interesting because as, as a writer, you're always trying to find the most interesting way to do something. And at times, you know, a lot of times people write their first draft of anything is like a vomit draft. It's like, let me just bleh, put this on paper. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, you know, then they start to like, like, like Tarantino, like Pulp Fiction, which is a very famous movie, brilliant script. But I'm sure when he first wrote that movie, he didn't write it the way it was. He probably wrote it differently because if you know the movie, starts off at the end of the movie basically, and then it goes back to the middle and the beginning, the middle, the end. It goes back and forth with, um, with like three or four different um, uh, uh, main stars in the movie, and then they all combine at the end, and you see how they all relate to each other. But you don't write in that kind of mm-hmm. way. You write linear. Then you say, okay, let me move the scene over here, and then you start to figure out ways to make it interesting and and different and and all that stuff. So that's, I mean. I think you initially want to write linear and then figure out ways to make it more interesting. Like I got to get from this scene to this scene. You know, what, how should I do this instead of the, the normal way? Like a, a boring writer, if um, a boring writer, would, if, if somebody wanted to find out about somebody having like cheating on them, a, you know, the, the, I don't know, the beginning writer would be like, you know, somebody walks in the room and they sees, he sees the phone of the, of the, you know, girlfriend. He picks up the phone and he notices that, you know, she's been cheating on him. Well, that's, Everyone knows that. That's gonna, that's likely to happen. Exactly. So you want to find a way that you you don't know. Like, you know, think of an original idea of finding out how this person, you know, is cheating on you. So everything is about trying to find a way to do something that's hasn't been done before or so original and, and crazy that like, oh, I like that idea. Wow, I get, you know, like so you have to like keep challenging yourself to make things unique. Hi, I'm Arusha Pires, host of a new podcast called Investing with IBD. Here are a few snippets from the conversations that we're having. Facebook, you know, it's coming back. I was really treating it as a counter trend kind of stock. You have these really fast moving stocks. You want to have a little bit slower moving stocks also in your portfolio. What Bill observed after sitting through many market corrections is that the market will come down, but you need to wait a few days and see if there's going to be continued power. And that's where he came up with the follow through day concept. One of the most interesting things is, you know, utilities have actually been very, very strong over the last 52 weeks. The work that we've done on yield curve inversion suggests that after the yield curve inverts, over the next year, utility performance is actually not that good. Come join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's, I feel like that's the hardest thing too for someone like me anyways in, in coming up with skits because I've made so many skits and so many other people have made so many skits. How do you come up with a new idea that doesn't do – like comedy sit, or sitcoms, and they're all the same, right? They have the same writing pattern. There's an A story. There's a B story. And then the A and the B story connect at the end. It's literally the same formula. Yes. So how do you think of new stories and make them not – stealing someone else's other material you know this is the thing 
you're gonna steal. Yeah. Because the thing about writing is there are only X amount, I can't remember the name of this one book, but it talks about how there are only, say, like eight stories you can possibly tell. That's it. It's just how you choose to do it differently. There's always gonna be a boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, boy mm-hmm. gets girl back. You know what I'm saying? There's always gonna be that story ever. But now how you how you write it is what's gonna make yours unique. Every story you can think of has been done before in another way. And when it comes to TV, there was a show back in the 50s and 60s called I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. which was the pioneer. It was the first multi-camera sitcom. And that show, even to this day, I know people who, who have TV shows and they're writers, and when they start running out of ideas, they go back and watch I Love Lucy to figure out, okay, let's do an episode like she did with, like, with this and that because everything's been done in that show. So that's like kind of the show they look at for examples of how to do like that, but maybe a little different. Let's, let's, let's pertain it to how it would like relate to our show. Wasn't I Love Lucy groundbreaking in the sense that they did do the first multi-cam? That's like, it was, it was groundbreaking for many reasons. Number one, they did, the, it was the first multi-camera show. Instead of a single camera, you had several to show her doing her zany stuff and, and, uh, and Ricky, her husband, who was a straight person on it, who would like, you know, react off her craziness. So yeah, you had like three, three cameras and so on that. That was groundbreaking for that. Groundbreaking also because it was actually a mixed race because he was uh, Latino you know what I'm saying? He was Cuban. So, because he's Cuban and she was white, that's considered like, you know, mm-hmm. a, a mixed race thing, which was different at the time. And, you know, they um, they actually, because their husband and wife, if they were in the bedroom, you know, that was a big deal. Like, oh, you're never allowed to show two people in bed. You had to have a thing where one person had to have their foot on the ground at any, if they were, if one was in bed, the other person would have to have a foot on the ground at least so that it didn't look like they were in bed. Isn't that kind of crazy? How Just for the ratings, thing? you mean? Just to keep things like, you know. PG? Exactly. Or G, if you will. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So they would actually push the boundaries on a lot of things. And she was a female lead, which back then, I don't think there were no female leads because the only show that came out around then that became, I think, the second multi-camera was um, The Honeymooners which was two male leads. So every other show back then were all like male leads. Not until like the the 70s, uh, maybe the mid to late 60s. So probably 10 years after she started her show, where there was there a female lead on another show. Do you think there is a future for sitcoms? Because when I think sitcom, I think Friends and I think Seinfeld. Yeah, well, you also seem to pick the two greatest sitcoms. Yeah. <laughs> whichever, so it's not better thinking. But that. is there a future for sitcoms? Because I don't see any in today's day. You know what? There's always going to be a groundbreaking show. There's always going to be a Friends at some point. Not all the time, but at one point it's going to happen again. But you know? you, the, the trend right now, like I said, is the crazy, the, yeah. the weird, the yeah. the drama-driven. F- like Stranger Things, drama. 13 Reasons Why, drama. Sure. You got this new Maniac show, drama. Like yeah. but, uh, Ozark, like they're all just dark stories. Right. Exactly. And people, that that's the trend. But there's always trends that go up and down, up and down. Sometimes there's trends where... Th- Comedies are the biggest things out there. Back in the 80s, the big thing were comedies. There were more sitcoms on the air. NBC, I think, had like something where they had like like the Cosby show and they had, uh, you know, they had all these shows right in a row, like four to six half-hour comedies in a row. Comedies will always come back, even if they're gone for a little bit. Like Kirby Enthusiasm is on HBO. He took off like five or six years and they came back and they, okay, let's do another couple seasons. And now he's in his like, his like uh, 10th season or 11th season right now. And he took off six years in between. But HBO's like, yeah, come back whenever you're ready and we'll pick it up again. Yeah, I mean, I think comedy is something I would love to see come back because I feel like even in the world today, just everything's so negative and, and there's a lot going on with, you know, the guns and 
activism and all that. Yeah. And honestly, like now that I think about it, now that I brought up the types of TV shows and like the media and stuff, like we're being shoved a lot of negative things in, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. a lot of shows with killing, a lot of shows, like I don't, I can't go to Netflix and think of a, sh- and find a show on there right now that's hot, that's makes you laugh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm not trying to like put two and two together. Obviously we have a lot of issues in the world, but like that kind of caters to what's going on. You need levity. You need something that's going to be light. No matter, right. You know. Like if we're not making people laugh, like, like you go to social media and all you see on social media is people bitching and complaining about politics, <laughs> people bitching and complaining about this, this and this. Cause they have no a one, platform to do it. Now. Right. No one's ever happy with anything. There's no, and even on YouTube, there was a whole trend of drama. There was a whole trend of fighting. It was everything is shoved down our throats is yeah. negative and not happy. And I feel like that's something that definitely needs to come back. There will, there will, there will like I said, there will always be, there, the sitcom's going to come back again, either on a, on a network TV or on a cable TV or on a pay TV, whatever it is, it's going to happen again. And it's going to be like something that, you know, five years from now, someone's going to be like, that's the funniest show ever as a sitcom. You know, they're going to, that's going to be their friends or that's going to be their Seinfeld, you know, but it's out there. It will be out there if not now in a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, but it will happen again. It will always be because people need to laugh. Yeah. Right. We need to, we need to bring the trend back guys. We need to bring the comedic trend. We need to bring the, the good vibes, the positive energy. Uh, because even in California right now, we had a mass shooting in thousand Oaks, which, um, not many people know this, but so Kylie, my girlfriend grew up in Newberry park uh-huh. in thousand Oaks where the actual gunman lived. Oh wow. Went to high school with her. Was in like like At her the dad, same time, same time, wow. different grades, same time. Wow. Her dad went through her yearbook, saw it, found his like yearbook photo. Oh my god. Um, and she was at the bar. Uh, two weeks prior to this this mass shooting, same place where the, the massacre happened. She was there two weeks before. Two weeks to that. prior, Crazy. for the same night, college, on a Wednesday night, college night, college night. So I'm very thankful for for her not being there that oh my night, God, obviously, because yeah. it's traumatizing and I'm super sad for everybody that was affected. Yeah, it's horrible. And not to mention, the very next day, we have these wildfires. That's been, they've been going on for a while now. It's These fires are crazy because every year there's always a fire season, which is called fire season, and you know there's gonna be something that's gonna be burning up. But this year, it seems different than normal because it seems to have spread like in further areas than I'm used to hearing. Like Topanga, which is like a main kind of, you know, thoroughfare. It goes from like the beach over to the valley. And I, I was speaking with this girl just yesterday when she's like, my house, I, I was at my house earlier. They told me I had to leave my house because the fire is now coming to my house. And this is the, and now she just told her today that she can't get back into her house until next week. But next week they're going to have all these rains happen. So it's going to be like, she has no idea what to do. She lost her house maybe four years ago in a fire. Wow. Didn't have insurance. Now she has this new house. Now she has fire insurance, but she thinks this is the second time that she's going to be completely wiped out. It's it's insane. It's the most destructive fire in history, what yeah. I've been told. And the in over California 30, 30 or 40 people have died from the fire alone. Yeah. And it's it's insane, guys. And I don't think the rest of the world understands the magnitude of the fires, to be honest, because when I first moved out here, I saw... I was over at the Grove on top of the parking garage and I looked in the distance and I saw a bunch of smoke and a red sky and I, I sat and I told Kylie, I was like, whoa, that's sick. My first impression, she's like, that's a wildfire. I go, what? She's like, yeah, everything's on fire. Yeah. And I was, in my first impression being never seen it, never heard about it, I was like, that's awesome. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, 
I was so naive to the fact that it's so destructive and so terrible. And I feel yeah. like a lot of people don't understand because Kylie would tell me that when I grew up in Ohio, we had snow days. Right. Here they had fire days. So there would be a, a wildfire and they weren't allowed to go to school because it was too dangerous. Yeah, inhalation the smoke and the of inhalation smoke. Of smoke. Yeah. They, they literally had days off for fire. That's crazy. And this one is the most destructive so far. And yeah. I saw on Twitter actually... Gerard Butler lost his home. Yes. He yes. took like a selfie right next to his truck that's just in flames. Ironically, I actually have that. Like he's a buddy of mine and he, I texted him when I saw. Shout out Gerard Butler, Law yeah, Abiding Citizen. Jerry Butler, by the Favorite way. Favorite movie. Law Abiding Citizen was written by my friend Kurt Wimmer. Wow. Which is crazy. Who lives in Tarzana, not far from where all the fires were. But uh, Jerry, because, you know, I can call him Jerry. <laughs> uh, Jerry had, uh, I said, oh my God, you know, I, I hope you're right. I heard that your house, you know, got, uh, you know, you know demolished from the fire he's like no no it was it was part of the house but my whole guest house is gone and in the area all around and he showed me this picture then he sent me a video as he walked around the property it literally looked like a war zone like it was crazy i'm like wow the devastation but it's but he had a lot of friends he knows that a house away two houses away completely burned down to the ground rubble kylie's there now she she went jerry no, she's okay. not with Jerry. She went up to Malibu with her friend Taylor, and they are donating supplies because they need like like gasoline because the gas stations burned down and oh stuff. Uh, they need some food, water. If you guys want to help out, I'll, I'll put a, some information in the description so you can help out. Uh, we, me and Kylie went the other day and we donated some stuff to the fire station, a bunch of water, a bunch of snacks yeah, and, and, because and, they're working nonstop. And also a lot of these people like Malibu and that whole area where it's, it's not necessary. People think, oh, that's where all the wealthy people live. Oh, right. you know, we, 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 wah, wah, wah. No, it's not just that. It's actually just regular people also, not celebrities that have all I this know. money. And that's what people I think in the, in the media it's portraying. It's like. Oh yeah, you know Gerard Butler. Like right. he Caitlin lost Jenner his, or whatever. They lost their homes. Lost they have so much money they could just build a new one. But you don't realize that normal. I mean, I don't want to call them normal people because everybody's uh, equal. But like yeah. people that can't afford to lose their right. homes exactly. lost their homes, exactly. and I feel like that's not being portrayed enough. It's not. It's not. And I people think. don't understand too because there's no sympathy. I feel like for people that have money that lose something. Right. Exactly. And but still, I mean, a loss is a loss. You know, right. Whether you have millions of dollars or or you owe millions of dollars, yeah. whatever it is, you know? I mean, it's it's devastating to think that you could lose everything. Your memories, you can have pictures, you can have, you know, I mean, then just the hassle. Artifacts, whatever. Yeah, the hassle of going through everything to like, I gotta go get my license, like, I gotta do it. Like, who am I? Like, you have no identification anymore, perhaps, to, to prove who you are. There's a lot of stuff you have to go through when you lose everything like that. Right. How does that work, though, by the way? Because what if you don't have insurance, like your, your girl did? Like, yeah, she, I mean, you literally lose. If you don't have fire insurance... And you, your house is burned down by a fire. It's not like, oh, the insurance company is not going to be like, oh, we feel bad for you. Yeah. We'll give you like 50%. No. They're like, sorry. They don't care. They're, it's, it's, it's almost like talking to a robots at that point. It's like, you know, we can't, uh, we can't sympathize with you. You don't have, you know, you don't have an insurance. But I think anybody who lives in areas like that could potentially have Catch fire, fire yeah. you got to have fire insurance no matter what. And I don't know, like, I don't know the cost of these things. I mean, it's probably a lot. Because I know that back in, in New York, it's expensive to have fire insurance in like a, a business that my family has. And it's like, wow, I can't believe it's that much money. It is. So I can only imagine out here, it's probably de- it, it, the same. It's devastating because, yeah, I can't, I didn't even know that you needed fire insurance, you know, like know. 
Like you would, I think it's not covered under like homeowners insurance or renters insurance. I think you have to have extra stuff just like, like there's earthquake insurance and some people like, so I don't know. I don't know exactly how it is, but I so know many that insurances, exactly life. We have to insure our life. We have to insure health. our car, yeah. our health, our yeah. dentures, everything, our fire, everything you can think of to insure. There's somebody to say, Hey, you need to buy this policy for this. Cause it includes this, 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 Which this theft, fire. literally 99 times out of a hundred. You don't even need it. Except that one time. Except that one time. When there's the fire that's, you know, there was a, uh, I heard them say something about it was going like a football field a minute or something like that. Yeah. Like the fight, that's how fast, and that's why unfortunately how a lot of these people died because they realize, oh my God, it's coming to us. We got to get out now. And then they're driving and they're driving through the fire. You know what I'm saying? They're like trying to escape. And then some people unfortunately couldn't get through it and they died in their cars, which is Do you is think that was horrific. caused by like passing out from the breathing or- well, I mean, yeah, obviously the wind blows the fire that way. You once you're in, once you're in the middle of it, you know, you, from what I understand, I've seen that, some. I saw some crazy videos, like yeah. girl hysterically crying for her life, yeah. driving straight through, through a fire, like you're going like driving like, through. There the was gates no of hell. other way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, exactly. I couldn't imagine. I, I have to assume, and again, I've never been through the situation, but I'm assuming you die through the inhalation yeah, more right, than right. The, before the fire gets to you. Just like not to be more morbid, you know, you drown when the water, if you're drowning, you drown when the water gets inside your, your body. You know, it's not like, I don't know why I brought that up, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, basically you're, you're, yes. Yeah, yeah. Back to sitcoms. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, guys, send some love, send some love for California. Send your, send your thoughts and prayers. Yeah. I guess that's what we always say after something like this, but that's hopefully stuff money. like this can be prevented so we don't have to keep saying that. Um, yeah, you think there'd be something they could like somehow spray an area when it's before fire season right. to like, you know, retard any kind of flames that would come out of there. But what do I know about fire? Yeah, I don't know anything either. Uh, but what have you been up to now? Uh, so now actually I have um, I have a movie that I had produced, a comedy, something you can There we go. At, coming out in January in theaters throughout the U.S., it's called uh, Reality Queen. Okay. And it has... Uh, re, uh, you produce it? Yeah, I produced it and wrote it and have a, a little acting part in it. So what does a producer do? Because, all right, so the, the movie business, there are so many jobs, hundreds on the credits. Yes. You have producer, director, co-director, assistant director. <laughs> well, co-producer, yeah. Direct, yeah, co-producer. You have associate producer, you have co-executive director producer, of photography, director of photography, cinematographer, director of pho- photography number two. <laughs> yeah, you get all these things: you know, a camera, Writers, b camera. Yeah. Um, as a producer, it's interesting because scout um, location is that something producers do, or they oversee that? They, a producer is if you. I always look at it as a pyramid, and uh, the the producers at the top of the pyramid. John and, Abrams, producer or director? John Abrams. Who are you thinking of? Star Wars guy. Okay. Okay, neither name was right, first or last name. <laughs> um, <laughs> Star Wars is uh, is uh, isn't John Abrams a writer? No, but the name was so <laughs> off that you threw me off of thinking who this guy. George Lucas. George Lucas. George Lucas. Okay, so no, John Abrams is a name, bro. I know. It. I'm sure it's a name, but I don't. J.J. Abrams. J. J. There we go. Okay, thank you. Colin. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he did direct. Uh, that's right, J.J. Abrams. You threw me off with. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Abrams. Um, yeah, J.J. Abrams. I think wrote and directed. Um, or at least one of those two of one of the last Star Wars. Um, as a producer, okay, back to the pyramid thing. Who's the, the most famous producer? 
Besides me, I would have to say, <laughs> well, it's interesting because you have um, Spielberg. He's a director. Well, he's a director now, but then you have these people who are directors. When you get to a level, they're automatically a producer as well on it. You know what I'm saying? But um, there are some people who are just producers that, you know, um, well, it used to be Harvey Weinstein used to be one of the biggest producers, but we won't Ooh, talk about yeah. him. <laughs> um, um, oh, geez, there's so many of them, and so it's hard. It's hard to actually. You know, say because Christopher the, Nolan, director. Christopher Nolan's a director. He directed the. Who's the guy that makes everything blow up? That's J.J. Abrams, right? No, that's um, um, the guy that drives a Ferrari all the time. Uh, he never wants to use special he, effects. The Transformers guy, you mean? Who did Transformers? The director of Transformers? Uh, I just know there's a joke about watching some certain director's films where it's always something blowing up. Oh, Michael Bay blows up. Michael Bay, yeah, that's yeah, it. That's yeah. what I'm saying. He did Transformers. <laughs> Michael Bay does all that. But again, they're also producers as well as directors. But they're different than a, a, like a, a hands-on producer. Because there's producers that will get the title of producer if they're directed. Like, oh, here's a producer title also to give you more money. And there's other people who like, well, I brought, um, here's the project and here's the actors. I brought money in. So I'm going to get a producer credit because I brought money to the project, but they don't have any creative say in right, the project. Right, yeah. I was a physical producer, day-to-day operations. So I'm on top of the pyramid there again, back in the pyramid. And everybody underneath me, you know, and there's like, just think how big it is. There's like 350 people underneath me. They all have to, they have to, everything has to go through me. So everything they say, like, oh, we need to know about the, you know, the, the production design for this scene, you know, and it has to be like, this is our ideas. And I have to say, okay, yes on that idea, no on that idea. Does the producer do the budget? Producer sits with the line producer. (laughs) There's a line (laughs) producer who does the budget um, where they're, they're able to ascertain from the script when they read the script of, okay, these are the settings, these are the locations I need. So, and these are the special effects or whatever I need to do. So they, they're able to figure out how much it's going to cost. And typically what, when a movie is shot, it typically, typically goes over budget, right? It depends. I mean, you know, a lot of times people will also add in the budget the for it to go over, over knowing it's going to yeah. get. So sometimes they oh we, we're right on budget, but they already have the extra million dollars they knew were going to go over budget. Um, yes and no. My first movie, which is called Joe Dick, PG thirteen comedy. Joe Dick. Yeah, that's the one. Not I'm Joe about. Dirt. Not Joe Dirt. Joe Joe, <laughs> Joe Dick. Dick. Yes, you can uh, find it on another website. I'm just kidding. Find it on JoeDickMovie.com. <laughs> um, but yeah, Joe. So Joe Dick was. Um, my budget I did not go over budget number one I finished every day on time filming and this is I was the first so time so no director. overtime no overtime I finished on time I fed everybody well everybody got paid on time everything was it ran like a smooth machine reality queen um, we um, every day was we didn't go over schedule but we did go over time maybe half half the days but that's because the director wanted more shots mm-hmm but um, over budget, we went over budget a little bit also, but that, you know, ironically. Who covers the over budget? The executive producer or the money person who is uh, the executive producer in a movie is the money person. So say you have a million dollar budget and you've hit the budget, but you, you're not done with the movie. Who do you go to and say, hey, we need more money? You go back either to the guy that put the money in the first place and say, can we please have more money? Or you make a deal if he says, no, I'm not giving you any more money to go to somebody else to put that, the, that money in. And then they have to make a deal with the other executive producer to take less money on the, the split. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, but, um, but if it's a studio at that point, then the studio pays for it. But you know, most people don't make studio films anymore unless they're in the hundred million dollar plus range. Cause they don't make smaller 20 million, $10 million movies. Reality Queens, a $5 million movie. 
And that was That's one, a big budget. It was one investor. A lot of these Netflix movies are like one to two million. Well, there's also the genius I always look at is uh, Jason Blum, who does all the horror movies and all that stuff that, you know, every like, paranormal activity, anything like that, he's done. Boy Next Door, even thrillers. And he, Isn't paranormal activity the most grossing in profits? Either that one or... Napoleon um, Dynamite? No. Um, <laughs> it's either Paranormal Activity or uh, I think Blair Witch Project was the one that beat Paranormal Activity. Unless, I mean, that was the first one. Blair I just Witch. remember Napoleon Dynamite had like a $400,000 budget and they made like $50 million. Yeah, exactly. Something, <laughs> and I think like Paranormal was like a million and they made like $100 million, $200 million, whatever it is. Yeah, those are anomalies that yeah. happen. But, um, but that's a that's the jackpot. That's, a, that's what this guy Jason Blum does. He has a formula where his movies have to be like $5 million. So it's like, here we go. We have a script. It's perfect. It's uh, the script script is great it's eight million dollar movie he's like great eight million great cut down three million i'll make the movie and that's what people do they have <laughs> he doesn't want the money why no he knows that he has a formula that works so oh, okay he's like I, I i will make this movie for five million because i know that when i put my pna money in for um for advertising i know that i'm gonna open up uh, he'll do a five million dollar movie and put 10 million into the advertising, advertising. and now it's 15 million opening weekend they make 30 wow, and then they okay. go on to make you know 100 million so it's like printing money Wow. Okay. So, so since you hanging out with me and George and the whole social media gang, where do you see the future of the music or the movie business, the TV business? Well, I think that, you know, I think the social media people that are the influencers like yourself and Mark and Kylie, you guys, I see the next step is making that transition into um, TV and film either writing, uh, uh, producing, directing, like you want to direct acting. If you want to act all these things, I think that's the next step you don't want to be like, I think you need to be able to be versatile enough to make that, that leap. If you stay in the one area for your whole life, you, you might not, you might not have that chance to make that. Leap. Right, right. But if you start to try to make the leap early on, when you have the power, you gotta, you gotta take advantage of that. You guys have so much power. You know what I'm saying? You have so many followers that believe in you and rightfully so that you need to have, you know, um, you need to have a script or a project that you are passionate about. And you go to these people and say, I want you guys to let me make this movie and also pay for the movie. And I'm going to direct it. I'm going to write and direct it. I'm going to, I'm going to act in it. Right. But here's my question to, it's like, okay, I could post a YouTube video, get anywhere from a hundred thousand to a million views. Yeah. Why not just post a movie on my YouTube? You know what I'm saying? Well, what I don't understand is granted social media, if you're doing social media right, you can make a lot of money. Yes. But if you have a million followers on Instagram, it's hard to make a living with a with with just doing Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I don't think I could survive if I just did Instagram. Because I have YouTube, I have podcasts, I have Facebook, I have Instagram, I have all the I have music, I have all these avenues that, you know, they all pay me a certain amount of money. Yeah, that's the brilliance, by the way, of you guys. You guys are, you know, that's the difference when people are like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, Instagram model. Okay, that's that's great, and you're making a lot of money. But I don't necessarily see the future for them unless they were able to segue into something. You right. guys have so many talents. You know what I'm saying? But Music. here's what I'm saying: I think we should get paid more. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this on the podcast. If it was up to me. I'd give you more money. But yeah. I, but why don't advertisers pay more to people like us? Okay. When they pay so much to be in a movie, they pay so much to be on a commercial for a Super Bowl. I'll tell you what. What I what I think I, I've heard in the past, um, when you move away from that uh, medium, okay, to another one. They haven't seen the numbers yet to justify 
uh, like, oh, here's a guy who is, you know, uh, five million followers on um, on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Let's put him in a, a movie, a TV show, a, a commercial. The numbers that come back from that, the analytics all don't seem to justify that his people followed him or her people followed them to this new. But I'm saying, how can you even gauge, for example, having a Coca-Cola in a movie or a, the Marlboro like was a big thing like all the time, like cigarettes and every scene people were smoking cigarettes back in the day. How can you justify because there's no analytical measurement that he bought this because he watched that movie. So how can you you how can you say the same thing that like say I'm drinking a Mountain Dew every single day that I'm not selling Mountain Dews? Yeah, I, there's you know, no measurement. It's a good point. I guess I guess the measurement because I remember there was somebody um, uh, that was on a TV show, a social media person. It was his first role, I think I remember, and. I think they look at what they normally get in the Nielsen ratings of oh, okay. have all these boxes in people's places. Back in the day, they would do this thing, Nielsen, Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. and they would be able to, to ascertain how many people are watching what show at what time. So I guess they look at our normal numbers are, you know, 12 million Americans are watching this show. We're going to put this person on who has a 10 million person following. So now we're going to see how many from the average 12 million. And it's like, if it's like, well, this episode, you had 13 million people instead of 12. Like, well... I don't know, was that worth it? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. If they got maybe, you know, 18 million instead of 12, they'd be like, yes, it's worth it. So I think that they just didn't see the numbers at first when people started to make that transition. And, you know... Um, but what I'm trying to say is, like, how, how many viewers are on an episode of, like, Game of Thrones, most popular TV show? Well, interesting is that because it's on HBO, um, they're... They, they don't necessarily make the numbers on the first day you watch it because right. people can watch it throughout Playback. the whole week and they can actually watch it at any point at some time, you know? But So their numbers, I don't exactly know how they do it, but somehow it just works for them to put more money in that show than any other show in the history of television each episode. It's, so it's interesting because if you go to Netflix, you just see the titles of the movies, you see the thumbnails, and... You go to YouTube, you see the titles, you see the thumbnails, but they show you the views on YouTube. Why do you think Netflix doesn't show you the amount of views? Netflix is very secretive for some reason. They don't want to let anybody know their analytics of how they how they uh, justify stuff. They I had a buddy of mine who uh, who wrote a movie for Netflix. Um, it was a huge movie. Uh, his name's Max Landis. He's a, a really funny guy, very talented writer. Ironically, son of. Uh, 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 John Landis, who was a huge comedy director. John Abrams. <laughs> exactly. Can't keep, keep thinking of John Abrams. <laughs> a huge comedy director. He did like like the Blues Brothers movie. He he actually directed uh, the Thriller video with Michael Jackson, his father. But he was known for all these huge movies back in the eighties. So uh, his son, he did a um, he did a movie, and it didn't get a great critical praise. In fact, it got horrible reviews. Okay, um, it was with Will Smith. Um, right. Yes, it yeah. was bright. And it didn't get great. That was like a $100 million budget, I think. Something like that. They yeah. had some... Really, that was it, like the first hard, high-budget Netflix original. And yes. And and he was getting... Like, how they were doing it, they were paying all the principals, the, the director and, uh, and the writer and the star, X amount of money, and then they were done. They weren't getting any residuals. So they're paying them upfront potential residuals you would have gotten if this was a you know, release in a theater. And everybody's like, oh my God, that's horrible, that's horrible, it's not going to make any money. And Netflix loved it so much they already you know, okayed a sequel to it. So whatever numbers they see, whatever, right. it's work, it works for them. Because you know HBO, like the, how these things work, by the way, HBO and Showtime and these stations, is they work by getting new subscribers. Yeah. So when people come in, it's not necessarily watching the show. It's the people that that join HBO, that, that that 
pay for HBO to watch that show more so than people who just watch the show the night it's on. Right, because obviously you're not making money from the views. Right. You're making money from people signing up for Netflix. Exactly, signing up for Netflix or HBO, exactly. Do you think that, that, because I've always had a weird stance on this, the free trials. Yes. The three month free trial. Oh yeah. But put your credit card in so you can sign up because then on the fourth month, when you forget that you're Three signed months up in one day, yes, without a reminder, uh, with no reminder, then you get charged for this one month. And do you think that's a that should be illegal? Like that's a scam. Well, I think that I think that somebody did complain about this to a point where they have to now let you know when to it's renew. close. When it's close, like hey, this your free trial is ending. You know, uh, if you want to, if you want to change, you have to go to billing and change. It's so hard to figure out. Too. Right? It, you exactly. It usually it usually is, but. Um, in a way, it's genius. Like this happened with me with Xbox. I never play Xbox. I downloaded uh, Xbox Live for one game a year <laughs> a year ago to shoot a video for, to play this game. And then I, I'm looking at my credit card statements and it's like $80 Xbox Live gold membership. <laughs> and I'm like, I haven't played Xbox ever. I played it one time for a video. Yeah. And you renewed it. And then I go to the website to try to cancel it. Day of the charge. And there's nothing to cancel it. So I have to call them. And now I'm on customer service. And I'm sitting in there. I call and I go from this person to that person. And I'm an hour into this. And finally, they, they gave me a refund. But it was a courtesy. Like there was, it was a courtesy because I've never asked for a refund before. Right. So had, had a, like they wouldn't have done it. I know. It's crazy. I had a friend who, uh, who, uh, she uh, uh, had sex with a guy, and then the next day she went to the Plan B. She went to the pharmacy to get it. They didn't have it. She had to drive 20 miles to another pharmacy. They wouldn't let her do it. She had to go to another place. By the time she was done, she goes, you know what? Forget it. I'll just have the kid. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I know. That's a joke. But you, that's, the, that's the, the concept. It's like, yes, dude, exactly. through all the hassle to cancel so, this, exactly. you might as well just do it. Just have you. Buy oh, the, like buy your Netflix stuff. membership, eight bucks, whatever. Um, well... I enjoyed this episode. I learned a yeah. lot about the movie industry. I hope you guys did as well. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. New podcast every single week. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and download the app CastBox where we don't charge you for a subscription. It is actually free. You have my word. And I'll see you guys next week on Living Large. Deuces. Thank you for watching this CastBox original with Mark Donor. It's Living Large. Closing off. Hi, I'm Arusha Pires, host of a new podcast called Investing with IBD. Here are a few snippets from the conversations that we're having. Ah, Facebook, you know, it's coming back. I was really treating it as a counter trend kind of stock. You have these really fast moving stocks. You want to have a little bit slower moving stocks yeah, also definitely. in your portfolio. What Bill observed after sitting through many market corrections is that the market will come down, but you need to wait a few days and see if there's going to be continued power. And that's where he came up with the follow-through day concept. One of the most interesting things is, you know, utilities have actually been very, very strong over the last 52 weeks. The work that we've done on yield curve inversion suggests that after the yield curve inverts, over the next year, utility performance is actually not that good. 
Come join the conversation on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.